Welcome to Treasure Valley Podcast. I'm your host, Chuck O'Noctane. This week's episode is sponsored by the independent film We Speak. A moving relationship drama We Speak follows a young couple on New Year's Eve as they make an important decision that will affect the rest of their lives. We Speak was filmed in the beautiful Treasure Valley of Idaho during January and February of 2017. It debuted at the 2018 Twin Falls Sandwiches Film Festival, where it won Best Ensemble, Best Screenwriting, and Best of Idaho. You can watch We Speak on Amazon Prime. It is free for Prime members. How is everybody doing this week? Me? You know, just living the new normal, keeping to myself as much as I can bear, and getting overly frustrated with social media, and getting overly frustrated with myself for my inability to look away from social media. Today, I want to talk about some misconceptions regarding COVID that I find being frequently repeated and reposted on platforms like Facebook and Twitter. I'm going to be referencing my own personal research and explaining the best I can. I'm hoping this message will help educate the population in this country because the medium is a podcast. And a recent study regarding adult literacy in the United States places roughly half of the U.S. population at a fifth grade reading level or lower. The study I'm referencing is from the U.S. Department of Education National Center for Education Statistics. It was published on July of 2019. Did you hear that? I said something, then I referenced a reputable source where I acquired said information so you can find it yourself and not have to take my word for it. That wasn't meant to sound condescending. I was trying to be instructive because broad research and statistical analyses can give tons of interesting information and they require second checking because most valuable publications are filtered through some medium, whether it be a podcaster like myself, a news organization that sells advertising, or a meme posted by an emotional social media user. The medium chooses the valuable information from the study and presents it in an interesting way that gains attention because studies themselves aren't very entertaining. They're designed to inform. Let's look at my previous comment about the benefit of having a podcast. My intention was to make the U.S. population appear the least literate possible. With that mentality, I chose the percentage of U.S. population that reads at a fifth grade level or lower, which is just over 50%. That number brings the point home more than just 20% that read at a third grade level or below, or 4% that are completely illiterate. Also, literacy in the study is defined as English literacy, something to take into account when analyzing any multicultural country. My point is that you can take any idea and find logical examples or specific numbers from broad studies to prove a point. Today, I want to talk about what I see happening with COVID and how specific examples are incorrect. Let's start with a question that I see frequently answered incorrectly or incompletely. How deadly is COVID-19? Unfortunately, there isn't an exact answer. Prior to answering the question, too many news outlets and social media users assume everyone is using the same guidelines when answering the question about deadliness. So prior to answering their question, they can apply the statistics in a way they see fit to reinforce their audience for more viewership. By CDC guidelines, mortality rate is a measure of the frequency of occurrence of death in a defined population during a specified interval. For COVID, let's look at the cause-specific mortality rate, which is the number dead caused by COVID in comparison to the rest of the population. Also, let's say I want to use the data available to present COVID in the least frightening light. I could use the phrase, globally, the cause-specific mortality rate of COVID since the onset of the pandemic is 9 per 100,000 people. 
I could further downplay the danger of COVID by comparing it to something unlikely or something we understand that causes little fear, such as comparing it to the flu, which is a frequent comparison. In the United States, the flu killed about 61,000 people in 2017. The cause-specific mortality rate for the flu in the U.S. was about 16.8 people per 100,000. See, the flu is deadlier than the coronavirus. Obviously, this presentation, though correct, is misleading. To figure out the true danger of a disease, it is best to calculate the infection fatality rate, which is the percentage chance you will die if you catch a specific disease. The exact number is currently unknown for COVID because there are many cases that have mild or no symptoms that go undiagnosed. However, we can get a good estimate. The most recent study to calculate deadliness here in the United States was conducted in May in New York City. Epidemiologists collected random blood samples from thousands of people to check for antibodies and to estimate the total percentage of the population that was infected with the coronavirus. They then analyzed the reported confirmed and probable COVID deaths in the area while cross-checking the normal death rate in the same area for that period of time the year prior. This was to find potential unidentified COVID deaths. What they found was that roughly 1.4% of people who contracted the coronavirus died, or 14 of every 1,000. That number is much higher than the 9 per 100,000, like by 150 times. The infection fatality rate of the flu is easier to estimate. We have a lot more data. For example, in 2017, the seasonal flu was estimated to have infected 45 million individuals. And as I said previously, it killed 61,000. That would put the infection fatality rate at about one-tenth of 1%, or 1 per 1,000. As you can see, the infection fatality rate is much more meaningful because it takes into account the odds of survival if infected. This information also allows us to better analyze herd immunity and the question, should we allow the population to become infected so we can reach herd immunity? Estimates place herd immunity at roughly two-thirds of the population. If the infection fatality rate calculated in the New York study is close, then 1.4% of about two-thirds of the population will perish to reach herd immunity. An interesting bit of information to note, New York City was heavily hit by COVID, and the antibodies in their population are thought to hover around 20%. So the Big Apple isn't anywhere close to herd immunity. Let's calculate an estimated death toll. In Idaho, a population of about 1.7 million, that would require roughly 16,000 deaths. The United States as a whole, there would be about 3 million. To compare that to the 1918 pandemic, it is estimated that the Spanish flu killed about 675,000 in the U.S. The U.S. population in 1918 was about a third of what it is today. So to scale, if allowed to run its course, the coronavirus pandemic could be more deadly than the 1918 flu. Let's keep looking at other numbers that can be used for perspective. How about the overall mortality rate in the United States on an annual basis? In 2018, there were a total of 2.8 million deaths in the United States for all causes. So the potential of 3 million fatal cases of COVID in this country is a large number. I could say it would more than double the death toll within a given rolling calendar year, but that would also be a misleading statement because there would be people who died of COVID that would have died from something else within that same time frame. So the math requires a much deeper calculation than I am capable of, which is why I prefer to trust experts when it comes to these matters rather than go off my own experience. Which brings me to my next question. If COVID is so deadly, why did my cousin only get the sniffles? I personally don't have a COVID story to share yet, 
And if I did have a COVID story to share, its relevance would be my ability to create an emotional reaction in your body, which doesn't help with understanding the danger of any large-scale threat. As human beings, we relate better to stories than we do to science because stories engage our attention and are more memorable and therefore easier to repeat. One evidence for that? Well, I will quickly summarize a study published in 1980 called Perseverance of Social Theories, the Role of Explanation in the Persistence of Discredited Information. This was published by Craig A. Anderson, Mark R. Lepper, and Lee Ross of Stanford University. In this study, people were given two stories of two different firefighters that included detailed information about their families and their backgrounds. In one experimental group, the conclusions of the stories informed the reader that one firefighter was punished for being safe and another rewarded for behaving in a risky manner. The reward was in the form of accolades. Later in the experiment, this group was told that both stories were made up and were then given facts explaining that it is better to act safely as a firefighter rather than taking risks. Another group was given only the facts, no stories. At the end of the experiment, those that read the stories were more likely to ignore the facts presented when asked whether or not it is beneficial for a firefighter to behave in a risky manner. Let me try to put those findings into a more interesting story. Billy drives drunk. Billy first drove drunk at the age of 19. His logic? Well, I'm breaking the law by drinking anyway. What difference does it make if I drive home? It's just a couple miles. Billy arrived home safely that evening after the college party and wondered why drunk driving is such a big deal to everyone. By the age of 27, Billy has gone out drinking most Friday nights and driven home without incident. That would be a total of about 400 inebriated trips. Billy's sister, Dara, which is a Hebrew name, meaning nugget of wisdom, is concerned about this behavior. She shows him that statistically, he is up to 50 times more likely to die in a car crash while intoxicated. She shows him a graph from a report from the Department of Transportation analyzing fatal crashes and the blood alcohol concentrations of the victims. Billy thanks Dara. Next Friday, he goes out drinking with his pals. When it's last call, he thinks about Dara's evidence. He then thinks what a pain it would be to take an Uber home, then have to come get his car the next morning. He drinks a glass of water and decides he can make it home. On the drive home, he's listening to music through his car's custom speaker system. The random playlist lands on a song he doesn't care for. He unlocks his phone, and for just a moment, he gets lost scrolling through all the available options. The traffic light ahead of him is red. As Billy ignorantly approaches the intersection with his nose buried in his phone, another vehicle is barreling down the cross street, its driver keenly focusing on the green light ahead of her. Billy is about to select a song after seven seconds of indecision, but looks up suddenly when he hears tires squealing. His heart pounds as he notices he is in the middle of the intersection, which approached much more quickly than he anticipated. As he plows through the red light, he looks into his rearview mirror to see a car completely stopped in the middle of the road. Whoo, that was close. Billy drives home much more carefully. When he goes to bed, he realizes his mistake. Don't play with your phone while driving. Eight years later, Billy finally crashes his car while driving drunk. It was his 823rd drunken driving trip. He outlasted the normal odds of 1 in 625 drunken driving incidents resulting in a crash, as reported by the Association for the Advancement of Automotive Medicine in 1998 using data from 1993. Also, Billy died in the accident, because even though your odds of dying in a car accident are only about 1 out of 100, Billy was pretty drunk that night pushing him into the 35-fold increase category, and his dice roll landed on triple X. Let's get back to COVID. 
With a survival rate of about 98.6%, there will be more stories of people successfully navigating COVID, especially since the estimated fatality rate varies considerably by age. It is therefore easy to take whatever belief system you have about the disease, or anything for that matter, find a specific example to confirm your bias and repeat it. Case studies have a very limited use in science other than to inform a hypothesis for further testing or investigation. Using specific examples and stories can literally make the claim that jumping off the Empire State Building isn't that deadly. How, you may ask? Well, Elvita Adams jumped off and survived. If I knew Elvita, this information would be even more relevant, as I could get into details about her story and apply them generally to the population or all incidents as a whole. In case you're questioning me right now, Elvita's story is real. She jumped off the 86th floor of the Empire State Building and landed on a ledge on the 85th. It was reported to be a windy day, and it is thought a gust pushed her back to safety. With this information, I can make a plethora of statements ignoring the 30-plus successful attempts, such as, it is usually too windy up there to clear the building anyway. Or I could start calculating statistics and include the second person who survived a plunge from the same floor and landed on the same ledge. Well, probably not exactly the same ledge, but a ledge on the 85th floor. However, if I say the same ledge, it makes the story more interesting, right? So let's go with that. So we have two identical stories to compare over the 30 plus successful attempts. Well, now I can say that about 1 in 15 people survived jumping or falling off the Empire State Building, and my math would be correct. Actually, I think I just convinced myself that jumping off 1,000-foot buildings isn't dangerous at all. I just have to clear my mind of the fact that two of those falls were only about a dozen feet. So, please don't use specific examples when considering broad issues. The final subject I want to talk about today is that of wearing a mask. Do masks help slow the spread of coronavirus? It's easy to come up with examples and non-examples of people getting infected based on mask use. Why is that? Because studies on the effectiveness of wearing masks claim that the best reduction rates are about 50% with 95% of the population wearing masks. There have been studies that show all sorts of varying effectiveness of mask wearing over a multitude of situations. There was even a study that placed masks between hamster cages. All the studies show that masks help, but essentially, it isn't going to protect anyone perfectly. Imagine if Trojan condoms prevented the spread of gonorrhea with 50% efficiency. How comfortable would you be trusting that barrier to protect you from a stranger, however sexy? On the flip side of that seeming ineffectiveness on the individual level, if you extrapolate over an enormous population, reducing infections by 50% can be really helpful. To compare it again to jumping off the Empire State Building, if you gotta jump and you don't wanna die, you should probably wait for a really windy day. It's a frustrating time to be an American, and it's also a frustrating time to be an Idahoan, as it seems we're suddenly a hotspot for COVID, which appears to be igniting our population's dissatisfaction with our government and whatever political party you disagree with. I wish I had a way to condense this entire message into an easily expressed and ingested meme, but I don't. It's impossible. I still have yet to find a single valuable picture and caption that's capable of changing my life. Maybe I haven't looked hard enough. I'll keep trying, and I'll keep you all posted. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you like Treasure Valley Podcast, please subscribe and share. Podcasts are still a word of mouth business, so take time to tell your friends and family, and I will be eternally grateful. Insert eternally grateful meme. Insert goodbye wave gift. <laughs>